Welcome to the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, expository Bible sermons from the preaching and teaching ministry of High Point Baptist Church in Larksville, Pennsylvania, for the glory of God and the proclamation of His Word. We thank you for listening. And now, High Point Baptist Church Associate Pastor, Pastor Robert Bennett. You have your Bible still handy, I pray that you do. Uh, turn it over back into the Old Testament, back into the major prophets, you'll find Lamentations. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. The uh, title of this morning's message is Remembering Hope in Tragedy. I hope that we'll learn that this morning. The year was 1871. Horatio Spafford, his wife Anna, and daughters Annie, Maggie, Bessie, and Tanetta were living very well in Chicago. Spafford was a lawyer and an elder in his Presbyterian church. As the city began to expand, Spafford invested in real estate north of the growing metropolis. The chain of tragedy for the Spafford family began that year when on October 8th, Spafford would see much of his finances come to ruin in a flash as the great Chicago fire decimated the city. Two years later, while trying to recover, an economic downfall dealt further damage to his ability to provide for his family. To overcome some of the stress related to all the financial woes, he and his wife and four daughters decided to travel to Europe to visit some friends and seek rest. The last moment, Horatio was detained by business, and Anna and the girls, ages 11 down to 2 years old, went on ahead of him, and they sailed on the ocean liner, the SS Ville de Havre, which is a French ship traveling from the United States to Paris, where they were to spend time with family and friends. But once again, Horatio would endure tragedy. On the night of November 22nd, 1873, as Anna and the girls were crossing the Atlantic, it was their ship that was struck by another ship, a an iron clipper. Later accounts would describe the panic of passengers trying to lower lifeboats into the water as their ship was tearing in true, but they couldn't. All the lifeboats had recently been painted and were stuck to the deck. So as the ship was tearing in two, there was little that they could do. The Loch Urn, which was the ship that had struck them, that had collided with them, sought with all the might they had to rescue as many survivors as possible. But the bulkheads on their ship were taking in water, and it wouldn't be very long before their ship would also sink. Thankfully, providentially, God had provided an American cargo ship passing by that same area that received all the crew from both of the ships for those that survived the crash. Unfortunately, their ship did sink within minutes 
of the crash, and 226 lives were lost, including all four of Spafford's daughters. Several days later, Anna, his wife, having been rescued unconscious by the crew of the Loch Urn and brought uh, to Cardiff in Wales on that American freighter, that cargo ship, sent a brief message to her husband with these few words, Saved alone, what shall I do? After receiving Anna's telegram, Horatio immediately left Chicago to bring his wife home. On the Atlantic crossing, the captain of the ship called Horatio to his captain to tell him that they were passing over the spot where the ships collided and his four daughters had perished. Horatio wrote to Rachel, Anna's half-sister, the following letter. On Thursday last, we passed over the spot where they went down. In mid-ocean, the water's three miles deep. But I do not think that our dear ones are there, for they are safe, folded as dear lambs in the arms of Christ. On all accounts, it seemed that Horatio Spafford was well acquainted with tragedy and grief. And it still continued. A few short years after that tragedy, the couple had another son. Named him Horatio. That young son was lost to them due to scarlet fever at the age of four. You may know Horatio Spafford as the author of the beloved hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Tragedy has marked the lives of so many besides Horatio. In fact, tragedy affects some of us even sitting here this morning. And we're going to go further because this morning we're going to be in the most tragic book in the Bible. Lamentations. To discover, though, How can we learn hope when faced in the midst of tragedy? What can we do when tragedy strikes? So you've turned over to Lamentations. Lamentations is a small book tucked between Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and it's composed of five laments. Now, laments are poems. Each chapter is a poem of grief. A lament is a grief poem. The setting of these laments is following the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. You will know of Nebuchadnezzar because his conquest and his mention of him is found in what book? Daniel, in the book of Daniel. You'll see that in the first few chapters of Daniel, uh, this king Nebuchadnezzar. The reason for the overthrow of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem was the sin of God's people. Sins, really. They were practicing idolatry without restraint. They were overconfident and they believed that they had nothing to fear from the Babylonians because they trusted in Egypt, once their captors, now their friends, friends, so to speak. And they trusted that Egypt would come to their aid in the event of a war, but Egypt never came. Now, tradition 
assigns the authorship of this book to Jeremiah, even though his name is not even found anywhere in the pages. The overwhelming theme of Lamentations is sorrow and sadness, but in the passage that we'll look at this morning, we will learn that there is an answer for sorrow, even if it's not an easy one. Right? It never is. We're going to be down in verses 19 to 24 of chapter 3. In this message, we will learn three reminders for hope and tragedy. Three reminders for hope and tragedy. But to understand these reminders in their context, we're going to look to Jeremiah first through his sorrowful remembrances, and that's in verses 19 and 20. And second, through his hopeful recollections, that's found in verses 3, uh, 21 to verse 24. Let's look at verse 19 of chapter 3 of Lamentations. Jeremiah writes, Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. To start unpacking this passage, it's important to, to understand the words that are being used. And Jeremiah starts this lament, or this section of his lament, with the word remember. The form of this verb in the Hebrew could be represented in two ways. You know, I like to do this. I, I give you both perspectives and kind of give you what is most likely the, the right reading of this passage. Either here, when Jeremiah says, remember, he's thinking to himself about all that's happened in the destruction of Jerusalem and the captivity of Judah, the southern two tribes. Or he could be describing his, describing his prayer to the Lord. In his com- uh, communication, Lord, remember me in my bitterness and my wandering and my affliction and my wormwood. The most likely way, according to the language that we see here, is that Jeremiah is in an ongoing prayer to the Lord. And his prayer is for God to consider what he's going through and to put an end to it. Right? We don't, when we pray, we don't usually just say, Lord, help me. But we do desire to somehow be out of anguish that we may be going through. Jeremiah was the same way. He recognized the tragedy. He saw the tragedy, and he desired for it to end. But what was consuming his mind? What was he praying for? What we see here, my affliction is the first word here. The word here means poverty. It's the Hebrew word ani. And the word ani describes the state of someone for whom the gleanings were left. Remember the story about Ruth and Naomi, and Ruth was uh, charged with going into the fields of Boaz and gathering up the gleanings of the field? It was because they had nothing. They were poor. They had land. They couldn't work. They needed food to eat. And so she went out and followed behind the workers of Boaz to gather the gleanings because she was poor. The word Ani is also used to construct the word Bethany for the city of the poor and afflicted. You think of the life of Lazarus, who was suffering and died. Jesus wept at his grave. 
the house of poor and afflicted. But this wasn't the only emotion or circumstance that the prophet was experiencing. He says, remember my, my affliction, my poverty, and my wandering, my homelessness. As Jeremiah looked around and saw the city absolutely decimated because of the Babylonians, he could see there was no place to live. The once great city of Jerusalem had been wiped out, destroyed, its gates destroyed. Jeremiah and God's people no longer had a home to come back to. So Jeremiah's mind is racked with asking God to please remember his state of abject poverty. Jeremiah also asks God to remember the bitter poison that he'd been made to drink. These words, wormwood and bitterness, speak of the sorrowful state of survivors and what they were sought to endure, what they had to endure. Everything was destroyed. The people were eating dirt. They had so little to eat because of the destruction. They, they went into drinking water that was touched with wormwood. And if you've, if you've read in the book of Revelation and uh, describing uh, this bitterness that is caused for the people to drink in the end, wormwood was a very bitter herb. And the people were made to drink that because they had nothing. But they drank. Consider for a moment that everything that we are reading now was in the present for them. So as Jeremiah is writing, you get the opportunity to look through the eyes of someone that's going through this suffering right in that moment. And he's describing, remember my current affliction. Remember my current wandering. Remember my current bitterness. Remember my current wormwood, the poison that I'm made to drink. That's happening to me right now. And he wants to get out of it. We all would. The nation is suffering hardship and it has crushed them. Jeremiah and the people are not just impoverished, they were utterly destitute and homeless. They aren't just suffering bitter consequences, they're drinking the bitter poison of their rebellion against God as a nation. Jeremiah is not complaining to God. He's just stating the current state that he's in. Please help me out of this state. These are what, this is what's happening. He's praying that the Lord will remember the sad state he's in because he hasn't forgotten, because he's experiencing it right then. In fact, he says that, verse 20, Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. You probably didn't come this morning <laughs> to be brought so far down, did you? But look at Jeremiah's words. It's okay to be sorrowful. I know we're off topic here. I know our, our world tends to tell you that you've always got to be happy. In fact, there's so much sorrow in the world these days because people are told that you have to put on a happy face regardless of your circumstances. Jeremiah is going through terrible things, and no one's telling, hey, Jeremiah, buck up and, and smile through it all. Jeremiah's emotions, as well as the emotions of the people, were 
in line with the suffering that they were going through. And I want to encourage you, if you're going through tragic circumstances, it's not uh, wrong to feel grief and to feel sorrow. And you shouldn't have to be forced to put on a happy face when you're going through so much trial. But there is proper perspective as well. So Jeremiah is placing this suffering within its proper perspective. There is a city destroyed. There are lives killed. But he has a better perspective on these things because he has a relationship with the God who created and even allowed the tragedy to happen. So bitter was Jeremiah's anguish so oppressive the burden of suffering that Jeremiah couldn't get it out of his mind. I could be looking, I don't know, could be looking at someone that has tragedy right on their eyelids, seeing it constantly when they wake and when they sleep or try to sleep. Have you ever been through a crisis that's had that effect? Maybe you've experienced a sudden loss of someone close to you. Jeremiah had many. Many people that he knew that were lost. Horatio Spafford, the person from our introduction, is well aware of the loss and sudden loss of people that he cared about. I've mentioned this to some of you before, but I remember vividly the moment that Terry and I were faced with unexpected tragedy. It was about eight years ago now. We had just picked up our food after church at a Five Guys burger joint. We were in Colorado at the time, and I got a phone call from my mom. And she said, you need to call the sheriff's office in Nevada. Uh, Rick, Terry's dad, had passed away. And we knew that he had been suffering for quite a while, several months at that point, with cancer of his throat and his mouth. And he had struggled talking on the phone and... We knew that he was suffering a lot, but we didn't know how much. We got a call from the sheriff because he had chosen to take his life that day. And we were then thrust into a new position in our life to handle all of the, uh, the things that go along with someone who takes their life that you weren't expecting. He left a note and took care of his own expenses, but we had to go there and load up his car, and I, I did his funeral. Uh, those things you don't expect out of nowhere. You're just going to lunch after church, and you get a call that you never expect to get. Jeremiah went through a lot of struggles. He saw people dying in the streets because of the Babylonians. It was expected that there would be tragedy because of Israel's rebellion and Judah's rebellion. But it's not the same when you actually experience the condemnation and the suffering that comes with rebellion. Or nothing really prepares you just for tragedy out of nowhere. It's been more than eight years, really, since we received that call, and I still remember the day. 
I still remember what I was doing. And that day and the days following are something that I'll keep with me for the rest of my life. And for the rest of Terry's life, I still have a little pad trying to write down all these things. I'd never been involved with something like that. And I know that we're not alone in this kind of grief because sadness and despair due to health-related complications are common today. And sadness is kind of a common thing in our country. Depression, people all over, a whole millennial generation fighting with anxiety, sorrow, and despair. And a staggering number of them choose suicide to end the despair. Jeremiah was despaired. He was depressed. His soul was like a tire without air, barely moving under such a heavy weight. It was a little bit different as he sees the dead bodies of of his fellow Israelites laying around him than maybe something that I experienced. But it was nonetheless tragic. He was weighed down with all of his grief, and this has been the case through this entire book. This is the third chapter. This is halfway through this book of suffering and laments and grief and sorrow. The judgment of God upon the nation was so extensive that many would have concluded that God had finally and permanently abandoned his people. I mean, it's not very difficult to look. And look at the the city. Look at the nation. Israel had already gone into captivity before, and now the the final two tribes of Judah uh, are now in captivity. The city destroyed. The writings on the wall, actually around that time the writing was on the wall, uh, of that experience that, that God had said, I'm done, but he hadn't. So can we blame Jeremiah for being such a sorrowful guy? I don't think so. It makes sense that he's a sorrowful guy. It makes sense that he was crying. You may know, what did they call Jeremiah? The weeping prophet. Why? He chose to be in Jerusalem. He actually volunteered to go. He could have left, but he chose to stay back in Jerusalem and experience the suffering and trials with the nation under the hand of the Babylonians sent by God. I'm going to give you some more illustrations from this book. Uh, turn back to chapter 1. We'll call this the first lament. Chapter 1 of Lamentations, if you haven't already felt the weight. Verses 1 and 2 describe the city as a princess who has now become a widow. She wails in sadness and tears stream down her cheek. Those who were her friends, Egypt, betray her and dealt treacherously with her. The young men and women have been taken into slavery, the priests killed, the gates destroyed, and her enemies, the Babylons, were now her masters. The once great city of God had been made desolate. Because of her sin, Jerusalem became an enemy of the Lord. It is the Lord who's fighting against them. That's, that's your chapter 1. 
Now turn over to chapter 2. This we're going to actually read a couple of verses. Verse 1 of chapter 2, we'll call this lament number 2. Verse 1, how the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. And no doubt the question in the minds of many was, has God permanently abandoned us? Has he given up on us? Verse 2 says, he brought them down to the ground. You see that down toward the end of the verse. Verse 4, he poured out his wrath like fire. Verse 5, he destroyed the strongholds. Verse 21, verse 21, you getting a feeling yet? On the ground in the streets lie young and old. All throughout the city, the bodies of the slain were there. The people hadn't heeded the warnings of Jeremiah's prophecy. They hadn't turned from their sins, and now the beautiful city of Jerusalem was laid to waste. Go back to uh, verse 20 of chapter 3. Jeremiah says, Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. So he knew the suffering, and you could see why he was deflated under all that weight. If you remember back my uh, sermon I preached out of Psalm 32, and we talked about David's sin and uh, his lack of confession causes bones to hurt and, and tear up because he wasn't confessing uh, the sin. It took Nathaniel the prophet uh, to go and to say, you're the man, uh, Nathan the prophet, to go and say, you're the man who did these things. And the result of David's sin, which started with Bathsheba, led to the death of both his uh, newborn and many other in his family because of David's sin. Sometimes the, the consequences of sin affect more than just you when you commit it or them. People around you can tend to suffer because of your misdeeds. David's sin with Bathsheba led to suffering that happened not just with his family, but it affected the nation. There was an uprising by his son. All because David sinned. Sin unchecked has disastrous consequences. Sin unchecked has disastrous consequences. If you've not concluded yet that God is willing to send calamity and distress to those that continue in their sins, consider these examples. David and his family received the chastisement from God. That resulted in several in individuals losing their lives. The southern tribes were conquered by the Babylonians because of their spiritual adultery. This also resulted in the loss of many lives. It cannot be understated. Sins have consequences that often affect people beyond the person that commits them. So here we are, sharing in the distress of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, even though he was also suffering under things as a result of actions he didn't commit. Jeremiah was God's prophet. He was suffering because of the sins of the nation. It wasn't his sins. But he suffered because he was in the city. He was part of the people.
Jeremiah's memory and prayer up to this point has been awash with sadness and despair. But God desired that out of his same mouth, Jeremiah would express expectation and hope. That's why Jeremiah's poem and lament doesn't stop here at this verse. It could. This is all the things that have happened, the end. Now on to the next lament. It could have been that way. But Jeremiah, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes things different. There is hope in the midst of tragedy. And he writes it. Look down and uh, look at verse 21 of chapter 3. He says, This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. And we'll get into the this. Verse 21 acts as a transition between Jeremiah's remembrances of tragic times and his recollections of the Lord, the covenant-keeping God. Like the previous statements he made, Jeremiah looks back into his memory and remembers things about God. This time, however, it's not his memories of sorrow that he remembers. This time he thinks about the memories of the Lord and who he is. Jeremiah stops thinking about the current circumstances, not completely, right? They're wearing him down, but he changed his focus. Instead of thinking about the slaughter, destruction, poison, poverty, he turns to the God he knows from the Scriptures. And when he does, he describes three brilliant qualities of God that inspire hope. When he thinks on these things, his hope, which was lost back in verse 18 of this chapter, because he says this, he says, So I say, my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. So he leads up to the passage that we're looking at with saying, I got nothing. Hopeless. And you can see why this is this constant prayer, because he's mulling these things over, and you see the tragedy and the pain But he says, I'm going to stop and I'm going to think about who God is. Because that hope can be restored. We're going to take these three qualities one at a time, starting in verse 22. And they are the love of God, the mercy of God, and the faithfulness of God. Jeremiah is going to remind us of these three qualities that help us to have hope in the midst of tragedy. First, verse 22, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. So the first of these qualities that inspires hope from God is God's love. Now you may say, how in the world can you say that God is a loving God? You've just now told us that he destroyed his city and many people died. How can you say that God is a loving God? Heard that question before? People saying, that doesn't sound like love to me. The question becomes, if God is sovereign and is a loving God, why does he allow evil things to happen to his people? This is the form of the so-called problem of evil. If God is all-powerful and all-good, how can evil exist? The position of the skeptic is that only two of these can't. Either God is sovereign. Actually, it's made up of three. 
God is sovereign, he's a loving God, and evil exists, and only two of them can, according to the skeptic. In this case, according to him, there are three options. God is a loving God, evil exists, and therefore God had no power to change it. He can't be sovereign, because if he was sovereign, he'd stop the suffering that happened to his people. Second, well, maybe God is sovereign, he's a loving God, but maybe evil really doesn't exist. I know that sounds strange, and it is, but that's the belief, and, and we, uh, we thank uh, um, John for teaching uh, through uh, about Hindus who teach that evil and suffering are illusions. Right, John? They believe that it's made up. Christian scientists, the same thing, that suffering is an illusion. Third option God is sovereign, evil exists, but God isn't a loving God. We can't be loving if he's going to allow this to happen. So he's not. He's powerful. He caused the evil, so therefore he can't be a loving God. The truth here is that there's no problem. People say there's a problem of evil, but it's not. The existence of evil and God's exercise of justice by sending calamity or allowing it does not preclude the fact that he is a loving God. God is loving, God is holy, and God is just. In fact, it is because of God's love for Judah and the people of Jerusalem and his commitment and promise to them that he sent the Babylonians. That may sound strange. You may understand it more if you're a parent. Because you start to see that sometimes it requires the allowance of suffering and struggle, uh, even though you don't want it to happen. You, you see that those things are necessary. God's love required the chastisement of his people. And Jeremiah believed this to be true, even though he was suffering for no wrongdoing of his own. He believed in God's allowing the suffering and tragedy of God's people so much that he himself voluntarily took that punishment along with them. That's how much he trusted that God was right in allowing this to happen. He saw the idolatry. He saw the nation turning to other gods and putting their hope in, putting their hope in a nation that had put them in slavery at one point instead of having their hope in the Lord. Jeremiah knew the time was coming, but he still trusted the God that allowed these things to happen to the point where he would suffer along with the people. He knew the reason for the suffering, and that's why he couldn't think on it. That's why he couldn't help but think about it, about it and still have hope and tragedy. So he still had hope even though he was suffering because he still knew the God that caused those things to happen. He knew that God was faithful and true. And he knew he had a love for his people. He knew he had committed a covenant with the people that he would never break. God would never break his covenant because he committed it as a one-way covenant. It didn't matter if Israel was unfaithful. Read the book of Hosea. Read the book of Ezekiel. Uh, later in, in Ezekiel chapter, well, starting throughout the book of Ezekiel, as you see the, the description of Israel just absolutely committing spiritual harlotry. Hosea. And Gomer, marrying a wife who was a prostitute, prostituting herself to foreign nations. This 
was the nation that was called by God's name. Jeremiah knew the suffering was coming, but he trusted in God. He trusted in God's loving kindnesses. The word in, in this verse, loving kindness, or loving kindnesses, is chesed, which is the, the Hebrew word for God's loyal love. It's that faithful, self-sacrificing love that God had for his people. It's settled. It's committed. And it's not shaken by circumstances. When God made the covenant with the nation, it was not a fair weather agreement. Well, I'll be your God and I'll take care of you as long as you serve me. He did say that there was a tit for tat uh, when it came to God's commitment. You bless me, uh, I'll bless you. You curse me, I'll curse you. You do what I say uh, or you'll get consequences. But there was never a, or I'll break my covenant with you. There were warnings. Look at the end of, I'm giving you a whole bunch of work, homework afterwards, aren't I? Uh, Deuteronomy, at the end of Deuteronomy, you'll read uh, about the blessings and cursings while the people were at, uh, on the, the near, uh, where was that? Moab. I was going to say Moab. I was going to say Moab or Eden. Uh, but they were right about to cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan and they had to be reminded the covenant. You do what is right, and you'll receive the blessings of the Lord. You don't, and God will curse you. And this was another example of the cursings that they received. God used his instrument, the Babylonians, to bring about that destruction. You may be thinking about the life of Job. Things were going well for Job, and God used the devil. Whose devil? The God's devil to bring calamity into the life of Job because he knew that Job could handle it, even though it was great suffering that he went through. It's sunny in Larksville. God had committed them regardless of the circumstances. It wasn't just going to be, well, if things go bad for you, then I'm free of you. I don't want to deal with your troubles. As long as things were good, their relationship was good. No. God had chosen to love his people regardless of their sin. If you are his, there is nothing that you can do that can separate you from him. And you're a child of God this morning. More homework. Read Romans chapter 8. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verses, what, 35 to 39 height or depth, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or John chapter 10, that we're his sheep and we know his voice and there's no one that can snatch us out of the hand of the Father because we're his. That doesn't mean that God doesn't open his hand and allow for suffering to happen to us, even by or not by the consequences of our sin, because he loves us. I hope you're writing these things down. Hebrews chapter 2 says that whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He's going to allow these things to happen. But he will never walk away from us because his love is infinite for us. God's loyal love for us, his people, is so strong, there is nothing that can break that bond. God is for us, not if God is for us, because, uh, you know, who is against us, but God is for us. If you're his child today, God is for you. And his glory and our good are his goal. 
That's Romans 8, 28. There is nothing that can separate us from his love. Jeremiah says that this loyal love indeed never ceases. Right? He says, your loving kindnesses never cease. Regardless of poverty, bitterness, destruction of Jerusalem, God didn't abandon his people. So the brilliant quality of God that inspires hope is his loving kindness that he never gives up. The second brilliant quality of God that inspires hope is his compassion or mercy. Back to our passage, verse 22. The Lord's loving kindnesses never cease. His compassions never fail. The word here for compassion speaks of a tender, caring love for a mother and her children. And there are many mothers and many little children in our service this morning. And the little babies here with Katie and Alexandra. And we've got many little young ones being born all over the place. God's compassion is like that mother caring for her children. God's compassion is also like mercy. And it's a pity felt for those who are guilty. God's compassion for his children uh, is expansive, never fails. They've sinned. Uh, These children, this nation of Israel, are suffering because of their sin. But God doesn't give up on them. He still gives them mercy. He doesn't abandon them or pass over them. Neither does he overlook the heinousness of their rebellion. Well, you get a pass. It's all right. I'm a loving God. I'm a compassionate God. So don't worry. There's going to be no consequences for your sin. That's That's neither a loving God nor a compassionate God. God was compassionate, but he balanced mercy and justice in his interaction with his people. They needed consequences. They needed punishment from the Lord, and he meted it out to them in the right amount of measure. He gave them what they needed, what they deserved, but he held back a little bit. Justice says that all offenders should be condemned for their transgressions, but God's mercy and compassion offers leniency. Although they justly deserved eternal punishment, they didn't receive it. Mercy is not given so that the offender can continue in his ways, but his gratitude for the mercy would lead to transformation. He could have just wiped them all out, all of them. But he didn't. In fact, he didn't, he didn't just save the people that were faithful to him. He could have done that. Well, I'll just wipe out the bad ones, and I'll keep what the Bible calls a remnant. I could have just keep the remnant of Israel, uh, and then we'll all start anew. He talked about doing that with Moses at one point, remember? Uh, Moses is up on the mountain, the nation of Israel, newly uh, now out of Egypt, and what do they immediately start to do? They ask Aaron to build us a god that they can worship. God says, I'll destroy them all, and I'll start with you, Moses. God didn't destroy the nation even after that idolatry or this idolatry or your idolatry or my idolatry, your pride, my pride, 
any of your sins or mine, he'd be justly right to do so. But he holds back and gives us mercy with the purpose of leading to transformation. Not for you as a believer to say, well, I'm going to continue to sin because God's grace is amazing. That's Romans chapter 6, right? What do we say then? Do we continue in sin that grace may abound, that God's mercy will continue? No. We should be transformed in the result uh, as a consequence of the suffering that we, we are under, whether it's caused by us or allowed by God. We should be willing to transform and trust God more in the midst of trials. What mercy did Israel receive? Think of a judge in a courtroom. The criminal that stands before him is guilty, and the judge is about to hand down the sentence. It's within his power to punish the criminal to the full extent of the law, to make an example of him, and he can be, or he can be a merciful judge and offer a degree of leniency. The criminal will not go free, but his punishment could have been worse. The compassion that the Lord has for his people is eternally active. They may just have let that go by, but let me read read that again. Let me say it again. The compassion that the Lord has for his people is eternally active. What I mean by that is uh, even in heaven, God's people are receiving his mercy. If God were to ever stop giving you mercy, break the covenant that he had with you, through Christ, you would be damned. You would be in hell because it, was, it would be what you deserve and I deserve. God's compassion and mercy goes on for forever because he has great mercy. And it says here, what? It never ceases and it never fails. God's love for us never fails. God's love and, uh, I'm sorry, compassions and mercy never fail either. It's because of God's loyal love and compassion that none of us are consumed today. If you're a believer here this morning, be grateful for the compassions of God. It can't be understated either. Don't underestimate the amount of compassion and mercy that God pours out on you every moment of every day. You may say, I'm, I'm not committing spiritual idolatry. I'm not doing the same things that that this nation was doing. But the scriptures are replete with saying that even a lie deserves condemnation. What is it that God is restraining uh, in the way of condemnation for you with his compassion and mercy? I bet it's not as long a list as mine. Paul says, I'm the chiefest of sinners. Paul had a lot on his list that the Lord was compassionate mercy, uh, merciful toward him with. Although God will not condemn you for your sins because you're a believer, he is actively withholding many acceptable consequences for your disobedience. Many acceptable. This thing is really driving me nuts. First John speaks of a sin that leads to death. Read first. You guys got so much homework. First John chapter 5 talks about a sin that leads to death. Be grateful that at this moment, 
God is not giving you that or any sin that you commit. Be grateful that God's compassions never fail. Jeremiah gives us one final brilliant quality of God that inspires hope, and that's his faithfulness. Look down at verse 23. They are new every morning, his compassions. Great is your faithfulness. This is why I say that this is a prayer to God, because it kind of switches. He, starts, he talks about God to God, and now he talks directly to God about God. He says, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Listen, because of God's loving kindness, we have not been abandoned. Because of his compassions, we have not been destroyed. And because of his faithfulness, we can trust that in the circumstances that involve a crisis or a tragedy in our lives, it's ultimately done for the good of us and for God's highest glory. It's our ultimate good and God's highest glory that we're involved in the suffering and circumstances, whatever they may be, in any moment of any day. All things, the Bible says, work together for our good. We can trust that it's true because we know that God is faithful. Although Judah was not faithful to the covenant, God was. So often, you and me are not faithful to God's covenant, but he is. Repent of your sins, believe in Jesus, and God will give you eternal life, the covenant says. And yet, it doesn't take long before you're either sitting here now and thinking sinful thoughts or having sinful motives, or you're out those doors and you have the same or do the same. God still is faithful, regardless of how often we're willing to break and desire to break that covenant through our sins. But we can't. If he has saved us, he will keep us. He will preserve us. There was no sin that Judah could commit or you and I commit that would make God unfaithful to his covenant. You can't force God's hand. He brought chastisement upon Jerusalem, but they were not utterly destroyed. Jeremiah knew that God was trustworthy, even though he was suffering. So what about you? Strong charge. But I ask you, do you believe that God is faithful? Think about your life. Has God been faithful even in difficult times? Can you trust him? You look at the lives of the people in Lamentations, and you say they could have all been destroyed because of their sin, but God was faithful. The prophet, who is, as we said before, he's in the moment, seeing the suffering, and yet he can say, you are faithful. If Jeremiah can trust God, I think I can. If you're unsure, consider the question, what, can, what sin can you commit that will make God be unfaithful to his covenant with you if you're his child? What sin? Have you recently suffered tragedy? You may not understand why it's happened to you. Job never did. 
Jeremiah saw, well, this is sufferings come from the sin of the people. Job didn't. Job, through his whole life, didn't get it. But now he knows. He knows now. Jeremiah was not a fool who tried to convince himself that God was for him so he could sleep at night. He believed the scriptures that told him that God is loving, God is merciful, and God is faithful. He believed this because likely he remembered what God said in Exodus 34. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindnesses and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin, Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. God is faithful. But he doesn't ignore sin and its consequences. All of that passage is all of what was happening with Jeremiah. They were suffering. But God is still good, and God is still compassionate, and God is still loving, even in the midst of it. God knew that the judgment of God was necessary, and he trusted God. And ultimately, through all the tragedy, he could say in verse 24 that the Lord is my portion. He says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in him. Jeremiah knew that he could trust God. He knew it. Jeremiah prayed to God in verse 19 to remember his poverty and his homelessness. And now, he's, now he calls God his portion. He says, I have the Lord. Jeremiah recognized in his poverty he had nothing, but now he knows that the Lord is his. He says that because he has the Lord, he has hope. If you don't have the Lord, there is no hope. None. Suffering, tragedy, death. Bring no solitude, no, uh, no comfort. Well, if I die, I don't believe in God, therefore I'll just go into darkness, there won't be anything. I'll just die, I'll be dead as a doornail. There's nothing after life, so I got nothing to worry about. Nope. Can't escape it because you just want it to be that way. Consequences will come. Those who have the Lord as their possession have hope because of the faithfulness of God, because of his love, because of his mercy. This phrase is repeated in verse, uh, from verse 21 to book in the confidence of the Lord. So he says, um, uh, verse 18, my strength has perished and so has my hope in the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 14 or 24 then says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in the Lord. My hope is gone, and now my hope is restored, because I remember these things. When Jeremiah recalls to mind all the tragedy and then lays them side by side with God's love, with God's compassion, and with God's faithfulness, he sets them side by side, he looks at them, he concludes that he has reason to hope. Horatio Spafford stood on the deck of the ship and considered the tragedy he'd suffered. But when he laid all of his sorrows, and potentially the sorrows that would come, 
side by side with all he knew about God, he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like a sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. If you're a believer this morning who is suffering tragedy and your memory is filled with sorrow, go to God in confidence of his love, mercy, and faithfulness. Trust that these things have been given to you for your good. It may not happen easily. As I said in the beginning, the scriptures have an answer for hope in trials and tragedy and suffering. But it isn't an easy answer. I counsel people, and it's not like, here, here's the pill, have hope, set all your stuff next to God, and boom, everything will be good. That's not how it works. This is a reminder. This is something that that Jeremiah had to constantly be reminded of. It doesn't say his mercies are renewed every morning because he only takes one day. He says it's renewed every morning because he needed God's mercy and his faithfulness and his love every day. Every morning it was needed. If you're sitting here today unsure of your destination, go to God in repentance, confess your sins, and he will abundantly pardon you. He can. There's people, there are people here today sitting in these seats that don't believe any of these things or don't believe enough to change, to repent. But I want to call you to repentance this morning. Set your sins along with God's infinite mercy and eternal life. Set them side by side and do what Pascal said and say, I'd rather have these things than to suffer for my sins. Don't flee from God because of your consequences, but go to God because he's willing to abundantly pardon and give you everlasting life, even though you shake your fist at him every day. You do that. Give you hope in the midst of troubles and trials and tragedy. And then you can say, like Spafford, who only a couple of years later had to go through more trial with the loss of his son, that it is well with his soul. You can sing that with renewed vigor, with real vigor. You can sing it because you mean it, like we're going to do after we close this sermon in prayer. Bow with me. Father, we... We have lives so often, for some of us, drenched in tragedy and sorrow. To the point where sometimes we don't want to get up in the morning. Sorrow has invaded many of our minds, or the minds of many of our family members who are struggling. But we know that we can trust you because you're faithful. We know we can depend on you because you are compassionate. And we know that you love us with an unending love, a love that we don't deserve. Help us in the midst of 
sorrow and despair of the words that we've heard this morning, of the words of the prophet Jeremiah, that we can have hope because we so desperately need it. We need, Lord, to be reminded every day of your loving kindnesses, your compassion, and your faithfulness. May we live lives in thankfulness to the many gifts you've given us and to the one who died for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. You've been listening to the expository Bible teaching of our associate pastor, Pastor Robert Bennett, on the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, and we pray you have been blessed by what you've heard. If you have any questions about the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or if you would like to speak with someone concerning salvation through faith, please reach out to us right away. It would be a great joy and blessing to minister to you. Contact information can be found on our website. If you have any additional questions or comments regarding this sermon, would like to know more about our church, or would like to submit a prayer request, just visit us online at highpointbaptist.church. Additional sermons can be found on the SermonCast page of our website and may be downloaded or streamed free of charge. Our website again is highpointbaptist.church. Thank you again for listening. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Copyright 2018, High Point Baptist Church, All Rights Reserved.